0: Um so this what basically the um significant um chunk of reading you have to do will be over this weekend which is books 6 through 8 um and you know it's lots of stuff happens rapidly it's not that hard um and that will uh keep us on a reasonable track then over break that is between February 11th and February 22nd. Um, you'll obviously be catching up a lot, right? And um, finish Paradise Lost. Thing, which say read book, read books 11 through 12. Um, but other than that, other than for over this weekend and over break, um, the readings continue as one book per class. On Thursday, some of you will have gotten an email already. We have sections. Um, so just, you can figure out what section you're going to on the basis of that email. Um, Courtney's will, I think yours will be in here, and mine will be across the hall. Um, and, uh, they're discussion sections, so, uh, we'll discuss. Um, all right, there's another, um, handout coming around. Um, in it, um... I'm giving you, again, something you already got, which is Shelley's, Shelley's um, description of Satan, not from the preface to Prometheus Unbound, which is what we already looked at, but now from Shelley's great, great, great essay called A Defense of Poetry, um, which is the essay in which um, Shelley says um, that what he says about King Lear that we already looked at. Um, he also has a lot to say about Dante and Milton. And uh, it's, again, worth looking at what he has to say about Milton in the handout. This is the prose part. Um, and um, I just want to read you, since this is relevant, or in a second I want to read you, since this is relevant, or I want us to look at what um, Shelley has to say about the moral difference between Satan and God, that's something he says a little bit in the preface to Prometheus Unbound, when he say that uh, when he says that we compare Satan's faults with his wrongs, that is the wrongs that are done to him, um, and the wrongs that are done to him are done to him by God. Um, so, in the preface to Prometheus Unbound. Um, He says, the way the wrong God does to Satan exceeds all measure, and this unfortunately causes us to ignore his faults. He does have faults. He's not perfect. Um, However, he is punished infinitely for what are finite faults. Um, He's not exempt from the taints of bad characteristics. Um, but the wrongs done to him exceed all measure. That's what he says in the preface to Prometheus Unbound. Um, I want us to go back to the to the passage in uh, Book One, and then look also look at a passage in Book Two before we get to book before we spend a lot of time on Book Three today. But just go to Book Three, line fifty six. So, book three, like book one, ends begins. Excuse me, with an invocation to um, the muse. In book one, that muse is God, um, or the Holy Spirit, um, and chiefly, thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, is who he invokes in book one. In book three, the first three words of book three are another invocation: Hail, holy light. Um, So Milton, the blind poet, is hailing light, the light to which he as writer, as poet, as thinker, as imaginer, as composer of this epic, has returned after spending two books imagining hell and describing the darkness visible of hell. So the invocation to book three, as it's called, is the invocation to light. That goes on, it's an amazing thing, that goes on to line 55, and we will return to it. But then he picks up the story. Now had the Almighty Father, he begins at line 56, now had the Almighty Father, from above, from the pure Empyrean where he sits, high throned above all height. An interesting phrase. He's throned above all height. Now he had bent down his eye, his own works, and their works at once to view. So um, God, throned above all height, is looking down at his works and at the works that his works have created. That is, what the things he has created have in their turn Created. Milton here is um, going back to a scene from the Iliad where Zeus and the other Olympian gods look down at the Trojan War. Now, um, this god is looking down at this Judeo Christian universe and seeing what's happening there. There's a lot, if you look at the footnotes, there's a lot of Homer in Milton. Um, a little Homer, even in the invocation to book three. Um, the end of book one has a direct translation of Homer. Milton does four lines, which are a direct translation of the end of book one of the Iliad. And Milton's translation is is spectacular. So just this is by way of noting um, how much Homer is in Milton. Also, how much Virgil is in Milton. But now God is looking down at his works and their works, and... Um, about him all the sanctities of heaven stood thick as stars and from his sight received beatitude past utterance. So God looks at all the sacred beings in heaven and they received blessedness past utterance. On his right, the radiant image of his glory sat his only son. So I will just point out for what it's worth That the son's relation to the father as the radiant image of his glory um, is in parallel to the image of sin and Satan. What sin says to Satan is that in me, thyself, thy perfect image viewing, you fell in love with me, is sin describing her relation to Satan in heaven. And there's a little bit of punning there. She gets her name sin because she is taken as a sign portentous. So sign morphs into sin. And the third um, word in that triplet is son. So again, I'm just pointing out not necessarily um, parallels, not necessarily um, the truth behind the imagery or the ideology but connections between what goes on in heaven and what goes on in hell. The particular connection that will be important and that we'll get to in a moment is that Beelzebub in hell asks for a volunteer to try to get to earth to pursue the guerrilla Battle against God, that is the um, the regular war in heaven in dubious battle on the plains of heaven has been lost by the rebel angels they have been officially defeated but they are continuing a guerrilla campaign and that guerrilla campaign takes the form of satan finding or someone finding their way to our world to the world of human beings to the world of earthborn beings as satan will call us earthborn perhaps and yet to heavenly creatures little inferior so satan um asks for, or Beelzebub asks for a volunteer to come to earth, and all the rebel angels decide it's too hard, and then Satan says, no, I'll do it. It would little become me to sit upon this throne in hell if I didn't have the guts to go to earth. And everyone cheers him and talks about how great he is that he is that he has the courage to do this. Now in heaven God is going to ask for a volunteer to go to earth. And all the loyal angels get lost in thought remembering some errands they haven't done and noticing the tips of their wings and kind of don't hear God and the son says I will do it. So Satan and the son both volunteer when no one else in their troop, in their society, in their army, in their um, military um, um, configuration will volunteer for this hard task. They both volunteer and they are both cheered for volunteering. So again, there you should see, if not parallel, at least parallax between Satan and the sun. So the sun is the perfect image of God, Like, as sin is the perfect image of Satan, and the sun and Satan both also volunteer the difficult danger to the world of mortality. So that's something to notice there, and uh, there's a bit more to notice in God's opening speech. One of the things that Milton does um, is he makes God a character in Paradise Lost, which um, many people think turns out to be an aesthetic failure, the reason being that Satan's speeches are so much greater than God's speeches that people wonder why he tried to make God speak at all. I think that that's certainly true, and I don't think anyone doubts that Satan's speeches are greater. Um, The defense of the greatness of Satan's speeches is not that hard a defense to make, which is that God, if you're an angelic reader of Paradise Lost, that is Satan, evil, God, good, Um, as opposed to a satanic reader of Paradise Lost, which is the reverse or mirror image of that. But if you're an angelic reader of Paradise Lost, the idea would be that God is straightforward, that God doesn't present himself as... Darth Vader or whoever, that God presents himself as the person who speaks the truth efficiently and correctly and with self-confidence and power because he's God. He gets to be self-confident. And that to try to make God great by making him sublime, as Satan is sublime, is to try and imagine God as the Equivalent of the destructive because the sublime is the equivalent of the destructive. Remember, the sublime is what's contrary to order, what's contrary to form. And God is therefore. By Milton's choice, explicitly not sublime. That's the. I, I feel it's my responsibility to give you the angelic reading of Paradise Lost. Um, the angelic reading of Paradise Lost, as a novel or as a series of novels, is done by C. S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. The chronic what? Chronicles of Narnia. Um, so the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the figure of the sun is actually Aslan. Um, and Aslan is, um, to the extent that Lewis is able to make a character somewhat sublime, Aslan is somewhat sublime. Um, and there he's not quite showing what Milton or what angelic readers of Milton see Milton as having the hardihood to do, which is to create a God who isn't sublime, who isn't going to, you're not going to love because he's so impressive, you're going to love because it's the right thing to do. Um, so that's the um, angelic um, attitude towards paradise lost. Well, here's God. So he, all everyone is receiving from his sight beatitude past utterance. On his right, the radiant image of his glory sat his only son. On earth, so now he's looking down at us or at our ancestors on earth, he first beheld our two first parents. So the first thing he looks at on earth is our two first parents, Adam and Eve. There's that hour again that we get in book one of Paradise Lost, brought death into the world and all our woe. Here are our two first parents, yet the only two of mankind. That is so far, yet there means so far, yet the only two of mankind in the happy garden placed, reaping immortal fruits of joy and love. So Adam and Eve are reaping immortal fruits of joy and love, uninterrupted joy, unrivaled love in blissful solitude. Then, having looked at Adam and Eve, he looks at Satan hurrying towards us. Many people describe rightly, I think, Milton's cinematic imagination. Um, Milton cuts from place to place with um, extraordinary rapidity and, um, and, and spaciousness in um, difference in scale, not only difference in place, but difference in scale. Drama can't do this, but epic can, and Milton does it more than anyone has ever done it before. And then he looks, and him, God beholding, now we're at line 77, him, that is Satan, God beholding from his prospect high, wherein past present future he beholds so god is so is up so high that he not only sees the entire universe but he sees all of time simultaneously thus to his only son foreseeing spake so god is foreseeing the future and now he speaks to his son only begotten Son, he says. Again, remember that the Son is never called Jesus in Paradise Lost. Jesus is his name on earth, but not his name in heaven. Jesus is the name that he is given when he is born, not the name that he has as the Son of God, but the name that he has as the Son of Mary. So, only begotten Son, seest thou what rage transports our adversary? What is adversary? What's the word for adversary in Aramaic, anyone? Satan, Satan, yes. So he's speaking Hebrew or Aramaic to the sun. They're not actually speaking English. Um, And so Milton's little gesture here for himself, if for no one else, but now um, for us as well, is the word he would have used is Satan. Um, Seest thou what rage transports our adversary, whom no bounds prescribed... No bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there. Remember, he's lying in adamantine chains. Can hold, nor yet the main abyss, wide interrupt can hold. So bent he seems on desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. And now, through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light, Directly towards his new created world. And man they are placed with purpose to assay of him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile pervert. Now, the son doesn't flag what God is saying here, but later God is gonna say something similar, as you will see, when he describes the beginning of the rebellion and warns his son. That Satan, we're going to get, as in Homer, we're going to get a narrative that takes us to before the beginning of Paradise Lost, and we will get the story of the war in heaven. An angel, Raphael, will tell Adam and Eve how Satan and his followers um, took arms against a sea of angels and by opposing ended themselves. Reference? Take arms against the sea of trouble and by opposing end them, Lily? Hamlet, to be or not to be. Um, so for Satan, it's to rebel or not to rebel. Um, so we're going to get the whole story of the war in heaven. That's coming later. Um, and when God makes a similar gesture, he says to his son, as you will see, um, Satan has started a, re- a rebellion. Um, we have to worry lest he dislodge us and defeat us. And the son laughs and says, um, you're right to make fun of them. And what we find out then later on, just notice this because it's an epic, it's Milton, you're reading it, you're not noticing the jokes because there's not that many of them, frankly, um, unlike in King Lear. But God is making a really vicious joke and what he's saying is oh no satan is coming after us i'm so worried and the son says you're right to make fun of him the way you're making fun of him this is what god is doing here as well what he's saying is i really try to keep satan in hell but I couldn't, he's broken through all restraint. I put chains on him, I prescribed his bounds, I put bars in hell, um, but he has broken through all restraint. The word all is a a, um, word to notice in Paradise Lost. All in Milton's mind is resonating with the word fall, um, and the idea is that everything, allness, is what God claims power over. But when he says that Satan has broken through all restraint, what he's saying is, you know, I tried to keep him in hell, but he is just so angry that even with all the power that I used, I couldn't keep him there. I built a wall to try to keep him out, but he just came right through. Um, so Satan is the illegal immigrant into our world that God, even God, um, can't prevent from coming in. Um, and he's saying to his son, I just couldn't do it. I really tried. I couldn't do it. And that's not true. This God is almighty. There's that word all again. Satan himself has said that he now perceives, now he believes by force that God is all mighty since only someone almighty could have had the force to defeat such force as theirs so God is almighty and yet he's saying I couldn't stop Satan from breaking out of hell and that's simply not true so the best you can say about it and maybe it's fine, maybe it's enough but the best you can say about it is that it's a joke that if Satan speaks sublimity, God speaks scorn God's speeches are marked by scorn, whereas Satan's are marked by sublimity. That may be fine. That may be right. The angelic reading of Paradise Lost will say to you, sublimity is the wrong choice. Better to be on the side of a scornful God than of a sublime um, rebel. Let's just go on to see another little joke God makes here, and this is the most important conceptual joke, that he's about to make. Um, And now through all restraint broke loose, again line 86, and now through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light, directly towards the new created world, and man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile pervert, and because he's foreseeing, God goes on and shall pervert, For man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience. So will fall he and his faithless progeny. Now, here's the thing that I want to point you to. There's a significant ambiguity, and Milton likes his significant ambiguity. He enjoys his significant ambiguities. There's a significant ambiguity in the phrase, and man there placed, in line 90. So there are two ways that you can read what's happening here. One is, and now, through all restraint broke loose, Satan wings his way directly towards the new created world and towards man who is placed there in that new created world. That's the direction Satan is going. And he's doing it because his purpose is to assay, to try, to see if he can destroy him by force or pervert him by false guile. So one possibility is man there placed means that's the direction Satan is going and it's Satan's purpose to see if he can destroy man. The other possibility is... He's heading towards this world and man, and towards man who is placed there with the purpose of seeing whether Satan can destroy or pervert him. In other words, the second reading, which is just as likely as the first is, in fact, I think slightly more likely, is, I put man on earth. I placed man on earth to see whether Satan could defeat or destroy him. So, the first reading is, he's heading towards earth where man is placed. And his purpose is to see what he can do to man. The second reading is, he's heading towards earth where I placed man because it was my purpose to see whether he could destroy man. Do you see the difference? It's the real question is, whose purpose is that purpose? With purpose to assay, who is trying to assay whether Satan can destroy or pervert man? Is it Satan who's trying to do it, or is it God? The answer, as logicians will know, is yes. It is Satan, or it's God. Or even better, the answer is, yes, it is Satan and it's God. Satan wants to see if he can destroy man. God wants to see if Satan can destroy man. Man has been put on earth as bait for Satan. So Satan wants to see if he can take that bait and get away with it. And God wants Satan to try to see if he can take that bait and to see whether man will resist the bait of Satan. So here, take it really seriously that God and Satan have the same purpose, which is to see whether man will listen to Satan or not. God and Satan share the purpose of making man the stakes of the battle between them. That's not just this evil thing Satan is doing whereas God is this tender benevolent figure saying, oh man, I love you so much. Look how nice I'm being to you. I can't believe you wouldn't be nice to me. It's rather, um, here I'm giving you lots of love so that um, I can see whether Satan can trick you into not loving me anymore. Plus I know he will because I foresee the future and shall pervert, God goes on, and easily, transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience, which is not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So will fall he and his faithless progeny. Whose fault? Whose but his own ingrate, God goes on, he had of me all he could have. So here are Adam and Eve on earth, as you will see um, a little bit later. They are singing hymns of praise and gratitude towards God. Um, They are the most innocent, most helpless, most loving, most wonderful creatures in the universe. Unlike the loyal angels, they don't know about war and destruction and death. As you will see, when God threatens Adam and Eve with death, if they eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, Adam says, well, we're not supposed to eat of that tree um, because we've been told that if we do, that in the day we eat thereof, um, we'll die. Um... And death must be something dreadful, but he has no idea what it is. His phrase is, some dreadful thing, no doubt. So it just basically is, if you disobey me, you'll be punished. The name of that punishment is death. Adam doesn't know what death is. So the punishment is, you know, you're going to get smurge if you do this. And all Adam can say is smurge, some dreadful thing, no doubt. But that's all he knows about it. God, however, looking down at poor, innocent, childlike Adam and Eve, looks down and says, ingrate. He's already angry at them. They haven't done anything, but he is already angry. So just imagine, to get a sense of um, what this is like morally, imagine um, a parent with a child with a with a with a six month old infant who's laughing and cooing and giggling and doing all the sweet and sweet and wonderful things that six month old do, and the parent looking at that child and saying, "I know what teenagers are like. I know how you're going to make me walk ten feet in front of you at the mall. I know you're going to start doing drugs and smoking. You piece of etc." That's what God is doing here. God is angry at these innocent humans because he knows what they're going to be like later. Parents know what their infants are going to be like when they hit adolescence. As Louis C.K. says, that's when they start to... I don't know if you heard that, but it's worth it. as his daughters became adolescents, his friends get saying, oh, 14, you know, that's when they say, he gets really pissed off. Um, but you would really prefer Louis C.K. to be God um, to, over God being God. And that's saying a lot, at least the God of Paradise Lost being God. So what Shelley says about this then, and this is um, in the Xerox, is he's describing the heresies of Dante and Milton. Um, he sees Dante and Milton as rivals for the great epic poets of the story of the tr- of the live tradition. The Christian tradition is live for their society the way that for Homer's or Virgil's society the classical mythology was alive. Um, and... Um, after saying a little bit about um, Dante and Dante's heresies, um, the important things he says um, are the distorted notions of invisible things which Dante and his rival Milton have idealized are merely the mask and the mantle in which these great poets walk through eternity enveloped and disguised. So that um, the idea of um, Christian religion, which Shelley hated, Um, and which he thought was a distorted notion of the truth of the universe. Um, He says Milton and Dante used those notions as masks and disguises, not because they believed them. It is a difficult question to determine how far they were conscious of the distinction which must have subsisted in their minds between their own creeds and that of the people. So there, again, it's um, what Blake says of Milton, that he was of the Devil's Party without knowing it. Shelley, who didn't read Blake, Blake and Shelley didn't know about each other. um, Shelley is saying it's hard to know whether they knew how heretical they were being consciously, but they were certainly doing it. They were certainly of the Devil's Party. He then goes on to say Dante certainly was conscious of it. Um, And Milton's poem, now this is uh, about ten lines from the bottom and Milton's poem contains within itself a philosophical refutation of that system of which by a strange and natural antithesis it has been a chief popular support so it's strange but not that strange says Shelley that people thought Milton and Paradise Lost were supporting Christianity when in fact he was refuting it nothing can exceed the energy and magnificence of the character of Satan as expressed in Paradise Lost. It is a mistake to suppose that he could ever have been intended for the popular personification of evil. And then this account of God versus Satan. Implacable hate, patient cunning, and a sleepless refinement of device to inflict the extremest anguish on an enemy. These things are evil. So who is he talking about there? God, yes. So God is evil in Paradise Lost. Implacable hate, patient cunning, and a sleepless refinement of device to inflict the extremest anguish on an enemy. These things are evil. And although venial in a slave that is, evil but explainable if someone is um, a slave and being um, uh, tortured and punished and oppressed by a master, though venial in a slave and therefore forgivable, are not to be forgiven in a tyrant, the tyrant being God. Although redeemed by much that ennobles his defeat in one subdued, are marked by all that dishonors his conquest in the victor. So all these things dishonor the victor's conquest. Milton's devil as a moral being is as far superior to his God as one who perseveres in some purpose which he has conceived to be excellent in spite of adversity and torture is to one who in the cold security of undoubted triumph inflicts the most horrible revenge upon his enemy, not from any mistaken notion of inducing him to repent of a perseverance in enmity, but with the alleged design of exasperating him to deserve new torments. So God actually wants Satan, and this is again, Milton is thinking of this beginning to book three. That is, he is he is bent on desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. That is, God is saying, I'm letting Satan do this so that I can punish him still further. And that's what Shelley is objecting to in this being whom he regards as purely evil, the god of paradise lost. It's not that Satan is purely good, but it is that Satan is noble. Whereas the god of paradise lost is purely evil, baiting Satan with us and baiting us with Satan, placing us where Satan can pervert us and cause us to deserve punishment in order to be able to punish both us and Satan. So, if you take what Shelley's saying seriously, and it's very hard not to, God becomes very, very hard to defend in Paradise Lost. Um, and you'll find that true later on as well. Now, let's go on a little bit with um, the relationship between God and the sun, God now gives you a theory of free will. Remember that the fallen angels, one of the delightful things they do, is after Satan addresses them, they go off and they pass through hell and they pass through many um, bogs, lakes, fens, et cetera, of death, a universe of death. Um, And some sing songs. This is book two, line um, 546. Um, Others, more mild, Retreated in a silent valley, sing with notes angelical to many a harp, their own heroic deeds and hapless fall by doom of battle, and complain that fate, free virtue, should enthrall to force or chance. So they sing about their own defeat. And um, one thing to notice here is that they are complaining that freedom loses to fate. They are on the side of freedom so too is Satan. Here at least we shall be free. So being on the side of freedom is something that you will see in Satan. It's something that you see in the rebel angels. It's also, as we're about to see, something that God claims to be on the side of as well. But they complain that um, fate... Free virtue should enthrall, to force, or chance. Enthrall there means make a thrall of or enslave. Their song was partial. That is, their song was about their own, um, from their own point of view. But the harmony, what could it less when spirits immortal sing, suspended hell and took with ravishment the thronging audience. So notice that their singing is so great, and this tells you something about why you might want to be a singer, a poet. Their singing is so great that it suspends hell as well. Their harmony suspended hell. Remember what Milton says of Orpheus in um, Il Penseroso. We talked about this a little bit before, that, um, hit that Orpheus singing... Um, drew an iron tear down Pluto's cheek and made hell grant what love did seek. That that kind of song can suspend hell. So their harmony suspended hell and took with ravishment the thronging audience and then there are others in discourse more sweet even more sweet than the harmony of the singers in discourse more sweet for eloquence the soul song charms the sense unpacking that it's eloquence charms the soul where a song charms only the sense for eloquence the soul song charms the sense in discourse more sweet others apart sat on a hill retired in thoughts more elevate and reasoned high of providence For knowledge, will, and fate. Fixed fate. Free will. For knowledge absolute. And found no end in wandering mazes lost. Of good and evil, much they argued then. Of happiness and final misery. Passion and apathy and glory and shame. Vain wisdom all and false philosophy so the narrator of Paradise Lost who is a figure we have to think about more and more a figure who is trying to be God's advocate but failing I actually read an amazing thing um, yesterday um, which was about a guy an FBI agent who was assigned to listen he was one of the people um, who was eavesdropping on Malcolm X And did you see this? Do you know about this? So this FBI agent, his assignment is to eavesdrop on Malcolm X and his phone <laughs> conversations and all the bugs um, on, in Malcolm X's apartment and wherever he went. And um, if you take that assignment seriously, you actually have to listen um, because what you are doing is you have to tell J. Edgar Hoover um, anything of any, any significance that you hear. You can't just blow it off. Um, you have to listen carefully. So this guy assumed he'd hear lots of really juicy things that would get Malcolm X into all sorts of trouble. And so he listened really carefully. And what he found was that the more he listened, the more he amazed he was by what an amazing person Malcolm X was and the more amazed he was by how what Malcolm X was saying was right and how Malcolm X was not on the side of the evil, um, that those who were eavesdropping on him were treating him as though he, were, he was evil, and he wasn't. And this guy was totally turned um, into becoming a supporter of Malcolm X by being amazed by what a good person he was. I think the narrative Paradise Lost is very similar to that. That is, the muse is telling him the story, he is hearing the story, of God versus Satan, and he's ready to tell the world how evil Satan is, and how good J. Edgar God is, and what he's finding out is that it's really, really hard to claim that. He wants to be on God's side. Again, you don't have to agree with this, but it's at least um, something that you should consider. The narrator of Paradise Lost wants to be on God's side but he's finding it harder and harder. He wants to be against Satan, but he's finding it harder and harder to be against Satan. So here, you will find him correcting himself, as he often does when he realizes he's sounding too much pro-Satan. He's saying, so these angels, some sang songs, they were partial. That is, they weren't really fair. They didn't tell the story fairly, but they held all of hell suspended. They were amazing. I don't agree with them. But they were amazing. And then he says, and then others talked philosophy. And what did they discuss? <laughs> Fate, free will, foreknowledge, absolute. Oh, they were all wrong. They didn't get, they, they couldn't think straight. Fate, free will, foreknowledge, absolute, and good and evil, and virtue and freedom. And they talked about good and evil. Not because they were talking about evil, well, what's good, what's evil, because we have to be on the side of evil. No, because they were actually trying to figure out what was good and what was evil. And then the narrator has to say, ah, but, but, but it was all vain, vain philosophy all. Um, but what is happening here is the rebel angels are trying to figure out what good is, what freedom is. Not because they're trying to figure out what good is so they can do the opposite, but they're trying to figure out what good is for the reason that all the classical philosophers they're following try to figure out what good is because it is, according to Plato and to Aristotle, natural to desire the good. The theory of evil that you get in the classical philosophers is that evil comes from a failure of knowledge, not from a failure of virtue. It is natural to like the good. The rebel angels want to know what the good is. If you remember the very beginning of Paradise Lost, which we quoted before, there's an ambiguity in the very opening of Paradise Lost when Milton says, "Um, what in me is dark, illumine what is low, raise and support that to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men that's ambiguous in the same way as man there placed is ambiguous, because it could mean I want to justify to the entire universe, to all rational beings, to angels, to to fallen angels, to pure minds, to the son of God, to God himself, the way God treats men. It's not my brief to justify the ways of God to the rebel angels. What I want to do is to justify to everyone the way God treats one subset of his creation, namely human beings. So that's to justify the following, the ways of God to men. Here's my topic, how God treats men, and I want to justify how God treats men. The other ambiguity is I want to justify the ways of God, period. The people who will decide whether I've justified the ways of God are humans. That is, I want to justify to men the ways of God. So one task is is the task of justification. Remember, that's the term also that Johnson is using that King Lear. One is the task of justification. I want to justify a certain thing the ways of God to men. The other is the task of justification to men, making men agree that all the ways of God, including his ways to the rebel angels, are just. So those are two different things. One is a much more restricted task in which men are the victims or the objects or the subjects of the ways of God. The other is God runs the universe, does he run it right? Humans are the jury in that question. Now Milton makes it clear in a later poem that he more means that we're the jury than that we are the victims of God's ways. In his poem, I've quoted this for you before, Samson Agonistes, the chorus there sings, just are the ways of God and justifiable to men. That is, it's as though he's clearing up an ambiguity from it, from Paradise Lost. Just are the ways of God and justifiable to man. So not just are the ways of God to man, but all his ways are just, to quote the Bible. So what that means is humans, according to Milton, have the moral intuition to judge God. We are capable of deciding whether God is just. Now this goes back, this is an old argument about the relation of divinity to goodness. It's sometimes called the euthyphro problem, which is there's one idea, a fundamentalist idea, a blind belief idea, that God decides what is good that if God decides that something is good, it's his decision that makes it good. God wills the difference between good and evil. If God decides that baby killing is good, baby killing is good. If God decides that um, worship of God is good, then worship of God is good. If God decides loving your neighbor as yourself is good, then loving your neighbor as yourself is good. They're not intrinsically good until God makes them good because God's will trumps all. So that idea is one that a lot of people believed and a lot of people believe. Um, one example of this is that Martin Luther, who's the founder of the Protestantism that Milton is writing in the tradition of, is puzzling about a moment in Exodus, or actually ten moments in Exodus, which is that Moses keeps going to Pharaoh and bringing down plagues, and Pharaoh keeps saying, look, just go, go already, go. And he's letting the children of Israel leave, which is the right thing to do, which is what we readers are rooting for. And then something like 10 times the next line is, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he went back on what he decided. That's where people get the idea that there's no free will. That Pharaoh tries, that's the Calvinist idea. Pharaoh tries to let the children of Israel go, but God changes his mind for him. He doesn't change his mind. God hardens his heart. And each time God hardens his heart, something worse happens to Pharaoh and the Egyptians until finally they're killed when they go chasing the children of Israel through the Red Sea. And each time it was God who made Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wouldn't freely have done. So Luther says, how is this fair? And his answer is, you don't get to ask. Who are you, God? You think you understand his ways? You don't. Of course it seems ridiculously unfair to us. Tough. We have to suck it up. I'm translating Luther really, really literally there from the medieval German. (laughs) We have to suck it up. We don't understand why God is fair, but he's God, so it's fair. Simple as that. The other view, which is Milton's view, is we know whether something is good or evil without knowing. We don't need to know whether God thinks it's good or evil. We already know that it's whether something is good or evil. We know that torturing the innocent is evil. So if God tortures the innocent, then he's doing something evil. So if Milton is saying, I am going to make God's ways justified to men, what he's saying is men are entitled, humans are entitled to decide if God's ways are just. And then Milton is showing us a God where it's kind of hard to think that his ways are just. Um, okay, bring in the handout again on Wednesday. We're gonna um, look at books three and four. Um, but I want us to look at the Wordsworth, the beginning of Wordsworth's intimations out on that handout as well. Yeah, did you not get today's Here you go. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah.